Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Hello, and welcome to episode 45 of Killer Hangover. I'm Bettina. And I'm Beth. And this week we're going to cover stories from New Hampshire. Yes, we are. I have true crime. Bethy, you have the paranormal. And the drink this week. Which is very impressive, may I add? I actually garnished it. <laughs> if you call a sugar rim a garnish. Well, that's even more excessive, I think, than the <laughs> So it is literally the last day of November. Mm -hmm. The Christmas holiday season oh, yes. starts. I've been waiting tomorrow. For this. My Christmas is already up. Our house is decked to the nines. But it is still November, so it kind of gave me an excuse to use this recipe. Okay. And I need to be honest with you guys. I Googled like New Hampshire cocktails and with the spike of covid out here i could not get any beers yep <laughs> i know that feeling uh so i was searching 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 for a cocktail and i'll be honest there's a lot of like whiskey cocktails that i love and there's like a lot of summery drinks mm -hmm. that looked really good but mm, i just saw this recipe and i had to make it so it comes from a little blog, actually, called OurCraftyCocktails.com. Nice. And she writes about a different cocktail from different states. Oh, we're going to have to use this. I know. Super cute. So she has the New Hampshire Spiked Cider Cocktail. Okay. So she said that her daughter actually went to school at Heineker, which is a city I'm covering for paranormal so it kind of tied <laughs> oh, in and cool. I was like okay oh, that's cool yeah so she said that they had like winery tours and there's a lot of apple ciders on these winery tours and a oh. lot of ciders that she tried mm -hmm. so she has this cocktail okay so before we try it I'm gonna tell you what's in it okay and I like quadrupled the recipe <laughs> I saw that you were shaking a lot <laughs> yes so for one little cocktail it is one and a half ounces of apple brandy, a half ounce of sugar maple liqueur, one and a half ounces of apple cider, a half ounce of fresh lemon juice, and a half ounce of maple syrup. Oh, wow. You fill the cocktail shaker with ice cubes, and then you pour in the apple brandy and the cider, also the maple syrup, the maple liqueur, and the lemon juice. Shake it vigorously. That's what she was doing. She was dancing and shaking. I was. Strain into a glass, and it says optional, add a cinnamon sugar to the rim. And you did that. And I did that. That's so pretty. It is. So I like, like I said, I quadrupled it, so we each have two of these oh, God. drinks in this <laughs> yeah, glass. This <laughs> she wanted to make sure we use our killer hangover glasses. <laughs> <laughs> we always get thirsty halfway through, so. All right. All right. Cheers, Mom. Cheers, sweetie. Oh, that's nummy. Had you tried this? No. <laughs> it's really it's like dessert oh it is like dessert it's like a candied apple i well. highly suggest the sugar cinnamon rim mm -hmm. because that adds a really good sweetness to it not that the drink probably is not good by itself no, but as that you're cinnamon drinking, taste as even, you're drinking it that rim brings a taste of flavor i think it's the cinnamon that does that oh it's delicious okay so i didn't try it but I left it on the counter and I was running the cider out to the refrigerator in my garage. And I left it on the counter and Alex was like, you didn't make me one? And I said, well, you could try it. And so I was out in the garage right here. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, so he didn't get a drink or did you make him one? I did make him one. You did? No. You didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Alex. At first I lied and then I felt guilty for lying. So, <laughs> no, I did not make him one. <laughs> Poor guy. <laughs> he 
had a few drinks of mine. He is happy upstairs watching The Office. That's what happened last week when I made that drink and I let him have a taste. And he's like, oh, man, that's really good. I know. Like, we, need okay, to just, we need to just start making three or four yeah. when, when Tom's in town, too. Oh, my gosh. This is so tasty. It's like a candy apple to me. Mm-hmm. It just, Yeah, that's what it tastes like to me. Holy cow. It's really good. Mm. Okay. Enjoy it. But don't get too carried away because I have a lot of twists and turns. And of a lot of names. Oh, great. <laughs> I did so well with that last week. For the paranormal, yeah. I mean, and that wasn't even that many names. No, it really wasn't. I didn't know too much, if anything, about true crime in New Hampshire. So, of course, I started with the Google search. Sometimes, I don't know about you, Beth, but sometimes I pick my crime subject because it interests me. Sure. Sometimes because I've heard of the criminal or the case. This time it was because the guy just plain pissed me off. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> oh. Wasn't expecting that one. I'm talking about Terry Rasmussen. Rasputin? Rasmussen. <laughs> Good Lord, she's starting already. Oh, I was thinking of but that's the guy from not, Anastasia. Yeah, well, don't think about him. From Russia. Terry Rasmussen is not his only name. So this is a man who's known to have killed six people, but suspected of killing many more. 2020 did a segment on him, and I've taken their timeline to explain the case because it is so confusing. And they really, after looking through everything, even seeing a written out timeline, it was confusing. And 2020 did a really good job at it. So I'm just kind of taking their timeline. Okay. So I might put the drink down so I can follow you. Okay. Keep drinking, but don't guzzle. Okay. I'm not promising anything. (laughs) I'm going to start at the beginning. In 1985, boys were riding their four-wheelers through Bear Brook State Park in New Hampshire. They spotted a barrel sitting in the middle of the woods. Of course, being curious that this wasn't a normal thing in the middle of the woods. There's not normally barrels in the middle of woods. They investigated. The 55-gallon barrel was blue and slightly rusted. One of the boys worked on opening the top and finally succeeding, they were hit by a horrible smell. Oh, great. The boys kicked the barrel over and ran. They didn't know what it was. And it was just a black plastic in it. They had no idea. And they kicked it over and they just ran. Several months later, the police were called by a hunter who had stumbled upon the overturned barrel. He had taken a look at its contents and determined that the barrel may contain bones. He was right. Authorities identify the victim as two females, one an adult, 20 to 30 years old, and the other a child, 8 to 10 years old. Mm. No ID. Both victims had died from blunt force trauma to the head, wrapped in plastic bags, tied with electrical wire, and dumped in the barrel. There had been no missing persons report. Surely someone would be missing a woman and a child, you would think? Yeah. The population of Allenstown, which is right outside of the park, Is only about 5,000. Okay. So small enough that if somebody were missing, somebody would know about it. Sure. Because it's like you told your story last week. Small towns. Yak, 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 yak. They wag their tongues. Yeah. That (laughs) thing that you were saying. It's a terrible phrase. I don't know why I used it. But the police came up empty. When two years later, the victims had still not been identified, the police decided to give them a proper burial. The church donated a plot in the cemetery, and the town's gravestone company donated a headstone, which read, Here lie the mortal remains known only to God, a woman aged 20 to 30, and a young girl aged 8 to 10. Sad. Awful. That the best anyone could do at the time. And I. It's great that they even did that. I commend them for having so much heart. Absolutely. The case went cold for 15 years, but police. Ron Montplaisier never gave up and would stop at the grave sometimes while on patrol, promising the victims that they would be named. Oh, that's so sweet. In 1983, across the country, (laughs) in Scotts Valley, California, a man, Gordon Jensen, and his five-year-old daughter, Lisa, have made a home in an RV park. Gordon works as the handyman around the park, and little Lisa runs around the park riding her bike and talking to people. She looks a little uncared for. Her clothes are a little small. 
and the child looks a little dirty and does look a little thin. A couple, the Deckers, that are staying at the park, kind of take Lisa under their wing, making sure she eats and is taken care of. In turn, Gordon turns to them and befriends them, admitting that he's having a very hard time taking care of the child by himself. Then he tells them a sad story about Lisa's mother. She died recently of cancer. But then a few days later, a few weeks later, he's talking about the mother and mm, she died when she was run over by a car. Oh, his story's changing. Totally. I mean, he made this like, so we were at a restaurant, Lisa, her mother and I, and it was a, a robbery. Somebody came in with a gun and was going to rob everybody. And Lisa's mother freaked out and ran outside. And she was so freaked out that she ran into the street and got hit by a car. What? <laughs> That's elaborate but every story he told he would break down and just weep the deckers wanted to help they believed him he was very convincing whatever story he told he was so convincing that you know obviously this poor little girl's mother had died and this Mm. man was terribly affected by it so well they just suggested hey we have a daughter who lives here in california she's always wanted a daughter What do you think if she kind of helped out for a while and took Lisa under her wing? And let's give it a two-week trial run. So he's like... weird situation, though. Totally weird. Totally weird. (laughs) So he's like, hey, cool. That sounds great. So they were going to take Lisa for a two-week run. It's not a dog. It's a kid. (laughs) If it worked out, possibly adoption. I mean, that's how far they went in talking about it. That's just so odd. Gordon immediately accepts the idea and sent Lisa Mm. off with the Deckers. Bye, honey. Love ya. It was not long after Lisa was with the Deckers' daughter that the family suspected the little girl had been abused. Oh, no. They went to an attorney and worked up adoption papers, which, of course, needed to be signed by Gordon. They wanted to take this child away from him as soon as they can, could. They didn't want to go through authorities or anything. Mm-mm. They just wanted to take this child now and help her. And they went with their gut. So they had these papers, which needed to be signed by Gordon, but lo and behold, Gordon had disappeared. Oh, crap. The family could not keep Lisa. She was put into protective custody. And authorities were looking for Gordon on account of child abandonment now. The police searched Gordon's RV looking for a clue as to where he had gone. Weirdly enough, the entire RV had been cleaned. I mean, there was not one fingerprint in the entire RV. He had wiped everything down. There was a gaming unit. And this was so cool. I thought, God, you guys are so smart. Anyway... So they checked, of course, the outside of it, mm-hmm. no fingerprints. And they thought, he was a handyman, an electrician. If he got the second hand, maybe he wired it up or something. Let's just lift up the panel and check. So they lifted up the panel, turned it around, and checked the back of the panel. There were okay. eight fingerprints that he had obviously not wiped down. Oh, my god! That was so cool. <laughs> okay, I have a really stupid question. So when I dust, like if I spray, like, pledge and why well, don't use that but if i sprayed pledge and then wiped it down is that wiping my fingerprints away or how do you clean up fingerprints good question i wonder if you do use a solution whether that does take fingerprints or away. even if i just dust with my clorox cloths the picker upper things right i wonder does that take off fingerprints like how do you clean all the surfaces to take off fingerprints do you know how long it would take to sure. clean up every that's why i'm asking is it just a quick wipe down? I don't know. You just take a cloth and just run around the building, just wiping everything down. Remember McDonald? Yeah. Case McDonald? They couldn't find any fingerprints except what on the light switch or something. I don't know. It was some weird spot that they found a fingerprint. Was it a plant or something? I don't remember now, but they found one fingerprint. The whole place had been wiped down. So that's got to be time consuming or not. Because he was just waiting for the police to come. So, he must have, I mean, as soon as they left with Lisa, started wiping things down. Yeah. I mean, is it just, we're going to have to look into that. I like, don't know. is it just a cloth that you just wipe, walk around with a towel and just wipe all the surfaces? I don't know, but these Hello, idiots. Gary, can't. <laughs> are you listening? <laughs> he would know, wouldn't he? Mom, why don't you just ask your good friend, Jerry? Okay. Jerry, we're talking to you. You know who you are. Be Mom prepared. Is going to be reaching out to you. <laughs> 
I want to know the answer to this. Seriously, if anybody knows, let us know. I'm just super curious. I've always I've always wondered. Okay, sorry. Go back no, to your story. No, that's fine. That was a really good question. Oh, thanks. <laughs> it's not just a hat rack. <laughs> so the fingerprints came back as Curtis Kimball arrested in 18 in 1980. Wow. <laughs> He's been around for a long time. <laughs> Arrested in 1985 for DUI, but the man cannot be found. Okay, I know there are a lot of names in this story, and there's more to come, but I'm going to mention here one of the detectives working this case, and I was really so impressed with her, is Roxanne Grunheide. I hope I'm saying that right, Grunheide. You'll hear her name again later. Her questionable name later. (laughs) (laughs) Let's call her Roxanne, but I was so impressed with her. And her integrity. Anyway, then in 1988, Gerald Mockerman was pulled in for Grand Theft Auto, which, incidentally, he had the same fingerprints as Gordon Jensen and Curtis Kimball. He's taken into custody for child abandonment, serving one and a half years. Gosh, that's it. He was released on patrol. He was released on parole in 1990 and fled. Once again, disappearing. He is now considered a fugitive. Okay. Now we're in 2000 and back in New Hampshire. State Trooper John Cody is informally given the Allenstown case. Uh, He wanted to see for himself where the barrel had been found in Bear Brook State Park. So he went to the site. Okay, so we're back to the barrel. Mm -hmm. He's walking around the site. In the distance, he sees an unnatural hump in the ground. And just being curious, he wanders over to it, moves some brush aside. And he sees a blue, slightly rusted 55-gallon drum barrel tipped over on its side. Another barrel? Yes. Dreading what he might find inside, he pries the lid open and finds human bones wrapped in black plastic and tied with electrical wire. The victims had been killed by blunt force trauma to the head. Two little girls, one two to four years old and the other one to three years old. Now you're telling the children's story this week. Oh, I know. This same year, but back in Richmond, California. Okay. Okay. Putting the drink down this time. <laughs> Yoon Sun Yoon introduces her new boyfriend, Larry Vanner, to her family and friends. No one is impressed with Larry, especially not Yoon Sun's best friend, Renee Rose. She described Larry at the dinner table. He had long, dirty nails, and Ew. he would wolf Ugh. down food, belch, wolf down more food, and then go just sit on the couch. Oh, he sounds lovely. She described him as creepy and thought him an unlikely match for Yunsun, who Renee described as fun and adventurous. Yunsun had traveled to different parts of the world by herself, but when it came to men, she was very timid, which led to her becoming lonely at times and then, yes, vulnerable. A few months later, Yunsun became more and more detached from her family and friends and then suddenly they didn't hear from her at all. Renee stated that every time she called the house Larry would answer the phone giving her an excuse as to why she couldn't speak to Yunsen. This went on for some time until Renee became suspicious enough to call the police to file a missing persons report. Larry was brought in for questioning. Remember the detective Grunheide from earlier? Roxanne? Yep, there you go. Yes, I do. Well, she happens to be in on the questioning about the whereabouts of Yunsun. She describes Larry as polite, soft-spoken, and smart, with sparkling, beautiful blue eyes. But something was definitely off. Larry would tell stories, totally avoiding the subject of Yunsun. When questioned directly about her, he changed his story as to where she was. First, she was up in Oregon visiting friends. Then the story changed to Yunsun had a nervous breakdown, and if the police talked to her, her breakdown would be revived. Okay, so he sounds very trustworthy. He's arrested. Detective Grunhauer, I'm going to call her Roxanne, and her partner visit the house that Larry slash Curtis <laughs> shared with Yunsun because now they fingerprinted him. And I was found just going to say, that, okay, yeah, they and fingerprinted that found that, him. that he's Curtis. <sighs> the house is messy. But even more disturbing and odd is that there are no signs that a woman lived there. There's oh, no gosh, really? women's clothing. There's no makeup. There's no shoes. Nothing. Yunsen's picture is on the refrigerator. 
but that is the only sign of her. Hmm. The detectives can find no signs of foul play in the house. They venture into the garage, which is packed with junk. They notice a small room in the back. It's more like a crawl space. There they see a very odd sight. Cat litter. Like 10 bags worth of cat litter. It's four to five feet around and two to three feet high. In the room or outside? In the room. room. It's just this pile of cat litter. So what's under the cat litter? There's no odor, but they do see blood splatter on the wall. Okay, this is some hefty cat litter. When they dig into the cat litter, they find a mummified foot, still wearing a flip-flop. You and your mummified people. Yeah, I got, that's right. Last week I had a mummy too. <laughs> Elmer and now a mummified foot. Oh, the victim is Yunsoon. She had been killed by blunt force trauma to the head. Mm. Larry slash Curtis is charged with murder, but there is really no evidence that he was the one who killed her. But it's, isn't this his house? It is his house, but there's no evidence that he was the one who killed her. He can still... So Detective Roxanne thought that maybe the 10 bags of cat litter would hold the key. And she was, I mean, how are you going to track down bags of cat litter? Now, they're sold in every store. They're sold in every pet can store. You track where he, unless he bought them one by one. If that would make it even harder. Right. Right. But probably. He bought it in bulk. He bought it. He bought them all at the same time. He got it at Costco. So she has an idea. He had to use, well, he was using a Yunsun's credit card. I was going to assume that, yes. So then he, she got a video of him at an ATM using the credit card in this like shopping center place. Okay. And there was this tiny little pet store that's by the ATM machine. Okay. She goes in there and she says, hey, have you sold like, a lot of cat litter lately or something however she phrased it the guy goes <laughs> yeah man you know there was a guy that came in here and bought 10 bags the other day and she ding, goes ding, ding. oh is this him and showed mugshot boom got him so it's like yeah that was definitely him i thought that was pretty clever of course that's why they, she's a detective and i'm not so curtis larry <laughs> Surprises everyone by pleading guilty. Roxanne has a hunch that he's hiding something. That this is way too easy. Maybe he's pleads so that she will not look further into the child abandonment case. Because mm-hmm. she's followed it down to there now to Gordon. Did he finally sign those papers so that family could adopt her? No. Oh no. We've gone, you know, through the years. So poor girl. Maybe he pleads so she will not look further into the child abandonment case. Hmm. This only fuels her need to keep digging. She requests a paternal test, and the results come back as no match. Gordon was not Lisa's father. Oh. Then who in the world is Lisa? And if that's really her name, and where is her mother and her real father? Hmm. In 2003... Lisa's case was reopened. By now, Lisa is 22 years old. Oh, gosh. And police update her on the new findings, which, of course, totally blindsided her. Can you imagine being 22 years old and saying, that guy that that abandoned you was not actually your father, and we don't know who you really are. Oh, my gosh. I don't know who your mother is. I don't know where you come from. So now authorities know Curtis kills people. Now back to New Hampshire. It's 2015, and the Bear Brook barrel case is revived. DNA testing is done. It showed the woman in the barrel was the mother of two of the three girls. Okay. Okay. So, the girl that was buried with her and the youngest girl in the other barrel. Okay. Those are her daughters. The middle child is not related to her at all. Now, I'm going to introduce another key player in all of this. Her name is Dr. Barbara Ray Venter. She's an investigative genetic genealogist. Oh, so cool. Didn't even know that existed, but this woman is amazing. Authorities believe Lisa was born in 1981. They weren't even sure about that. They were just kind of assuming. And with her DNA and assuming that the year was correct, Dr. Ray Venter finds Lisa's grandfather in New Hampshire. How? She made a family tree 
I, it took a long time. But with the DNA and ancestry stuff. Like all that genealogy stuff. She actually made a, a family that tree. That is remarkable. And she said, I mean, it was hard because usually when you do ancestry.com and stuff, you put in the year you were born and, you know, this you have like a lot more backwards. information. We had nothing on this girl, not even her real name, let alone for sure the year she was born. It was just guesswork. And she put this family tree together and found her grandfather in New Hampshire. It was amazing. Mr. Bodine is contacted and states that he had has a daughter named Denise, who is Lisa's mother. But Lisa's actual birth name is Don Bodine. The last time he saw them was at Thanksgiving in 1981. Denise had brought her boyfriend, Bob Evans, to dinner. Bob, Bob had, Evans, like the restaurant? Yeah, well, I guess. Bob mm -hmm. Evans. Bob had mentioned that they may leave town, but nothing was definite. When Mr. Bodine tried to contact Denise to invite her over for Christmas, he found that she, Bob, and little Don had vanished. Oh, no. He never saw them again. Authorities showed him a picture of Gordon Jensen, who had abandoned Lisa. Yeah. And right away, he IDs the man as Bob Evans. Mm. Okay, are you still with me? I'm still with you. Authorities now name this man the Chameleon because of his many names and identities. Is the woman found in the barrel Denise? She went missing in 1981, the same time the barrels were found, and they lived just 25 minutes from Bear Brook Park. Okay, Bob, good guess. Bob Evans showed up in New Hampshire in the late 70s and worked as a handyman and electrician at a camping store that happened to be located on the same property as the barrels were found. Okay. The bodies of the unknown woman and child were exhumed and DNA testing was done further. The woman is not Denise. DNA testing is also done on what the authorities now call the middle child, the unidentified mm -hmm. child. The results blow everyone's mind. The child is Bob Evans' daughter. But who's her mother? No. Is she dead? Now there is a definite tie between Bob Evans and the victims in the barrel. Well, at least one of them. Well, if he put that little girl in there and killed her the same way as the other ones, he obviously killed the other ones also. They well, were I know he killed the other ones, but I just wonder how he knew them and like why. Come in again, Dr. Ray Venter. Like I said, she, she's unbelievable. She builds a family tree with DNA from Bob Evans, and they discover that, in truth, he is Terry Rasmussen, born on December 23rd, 1943 in Colorado. Now detectives have the truth about the man. He went to high school in Arizona, but dropped out after sophomore year. He joined the Navy in 1961 and served for six years. He got married in Hawaii to his first wife, and they have four children. Oh, three girls and a boy. In June of 2017, his daughter, Diane Klopfer, was visited by the New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit and told about her father. Mm. Can you? No. They actually, she was at work no. and they actually said, can we interrupt you and can we talk to you for a minute? Look, we found your father. You haven't seen him since you were, I think, I don't, six years old or something. And he's a serial killer. Nope. I can't even imagine. She just says that she is so thankful that her mother divorced her father and that they moved away from him in 1973. Yeah, that they got away. It could have been us, she said. And Ugh. I'm sure it would have been. When you see Dawn in the interview, the first thing that draws you is her eyes. They are these beautiful, huge blue eyes. Like his. Yeah. And she says all of us kids have his eyes. Oh, wow. But, of course, they're filling up with tears. And she says, my father is a serial killer. I mean, I just felt awful for this woman and her brother and sisters. No, I just, just I hate that for any relatives of serial killers. I mean, that's not anything you ever expect. No, just get totally blindsided no. by this. What's so awful about Rasmussen and unlike most other serial killers is he killed women and children that he knew. Not just random people that he stalked or people, you know, just yeah. random people. These were people that he actually lived with that for just months. Makes it so much darker. And sometimes to me. even years before he killed them. Even his own daughter. Yeah, that's just, oh, that's so dark. 
So unfortunately, Rasmussen died in prison on December 28, 2010, of a combination of lung cancer, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and pneumonia, leaving many unanswered questions. But the story continues. Back in New Hampshire, a new person comes into the story. Oh, boy. Her name is Rebecca Heath, who's a librarian who likes to investigate. Cool. So after work at night, she would pour over message boards. There had to be someone looking for a woman and her two little girls. There just had to be. Yeah. After That's spending what I've just been sitting here like, okay, when are we going to get to those <laughs> Those so kiddos after and that mom. spending innumerable, I don't know how long she spent on this, she sees messages on the board from several family members looking for a woman and two daughters. The ages fit as well as the location. So Rebecca messages one of the family members and they start conversing. Then comes the chilling message from the family member. Oh, and by the way, she married a guy with the last name Rasmussen. Well, okay, hold on. So he used his real name. He's already been arrested and put in jail. Like, don't you go through the courthouse to get married? Like, wouldn't that be in records that he was married to somebody? Like, wouldn't they police look into that at all or no? You would think. Because they're looking for a woman and two children. Wouldn't they be like, well, who has he been married to? Let's interview them. But maybe it's hard to track down what, where they got married. Well, maybe they weren't lawfully married. Maybe they weren't lawfully married. Maybe, yeah, like he, he was I mean, just... I that's my thought is like when you go into his past relationships, I know he, he's changed his name a lot, so that's probably hard to track his exact whereabouts, but if he lawfully got married, he would have used his lawful name. So why wouldn't they look into his records? Like that's in the court. Like it's in the court that I'm married. Right. But I wonder and if you have to know... In your taxes, it says I'm married. I wonder if ha you have to know where to look, what state to look in or something. I, d I don't I know. I don't know if it's state by state. Yeah, I don't know. I have no idea. Or whether they were really married. Mm -hmm. Again. But why would he have used his real name with her? Because at the time, I mean, like, the his real name was with his first marriage. He, ha he hadn't changed his name to Bob Evans by that time. Mm -hmm. So he was still going by Terry. Sure. When he met, when he met this person. Hmm. Interesting. At the same time that Rebecca gets this message and is working on this, across the country, Dr. Ray Venter is working with a new technique of getting DNA from rootless hair. Did you even what? know about this? What? Yeah. And, and How's a, that possible? A lab, in in the root? a lab in California had developed this new technique where they look at the hair under, you know, all these heavy duty things and they can find DNA without the root. So just the follicles? Like yeah. just blow your mind. I yeah. cannot even imagine. And she had just heard about this, so she sent she got hair samples from from the barrel victims. Okay. And sent them off and they were able to work up a DNA profile. So in two thousand nineteen Okay. Last year, the victims were identified. Marlise Honeychurch, her daughter, Marie Vaughn, daughter, Sarah McWaters. So she had been married twice mm -hmm. before. Authorities speak to the family and find that they were all seen last in California in 1978 at a Thanksgiving dinner where Marlise had a fight with her mother and the four picked up and left. They have not been seen. What's up with Thanksgiving? I don't know. It seems Oy. to be a little theme that I caught on to. Yeah, and that was just a few days ago, Mom. <laughs> Jeez. Kind of weird, I know. <laughs> Guys, check on your family members since Thanksgiving. Make sure everybody's accounted for, especially if they showed up with new boyfriends. Ugh. Like, like that kind of give you the creeps. Yeah. They Seriously, were not stop seen. Stop listening to podcasts and pick up your phone and call your family. <laughs> okay, sorry. They were not seen again, but may have moved to New Hampshire, gathered from remarks made at the dinner. In 2019, the victims were finally laid to rest with names on their tombstones. Mm. Marlise and Marie were buried in Allenstown Cemetery, where it seemed everybody involved with the investigation attended the oh, burial. My gosh. Little Sarah was laid to rest in Connecticut near her father's family. The middle child is still unidentified. And it is unknown as to how she ended up with the other three victims. It is estimated that they all died at the same time 
between 1978 and 1984. Advanced forensic testing suggests that she was not from New Hampshire, but maybe from Texas, Arizona, California, or Oregon. The following... How, how do you narrow that down? With DNA. You can tell. What state they were from? Yeah, because of things that, like, in the teeth and them. I mean, it, it's so weird. Like, the food you eat, the water you drink, the different things in, in different areas of... I learned this through Bones, <laughs> the show Bones. So oh boy! That they can they can figure out like approximately where. Oh my gosh! Okay. The following is a description from the Associated Press: The child is primarily Caucasian with a small amount of Asian, Black, and American Indian ancestry. She was two to four years old at the time of her death. <laughs> placing her birth date between 1975 and 1977. She had slightly wavy brown hair and stood as tall as three feet, nine inches. She had a slight overbite. I'm just putting this out here for anybody listening. Please contact the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children at 1-800-THE-LOST if you have any information that could help identify this child. To this date, she is unidentified. Oh my gosh. All we know, though, is that she was his biological daughter. But it's all we know, it's all they know. Mm. There are other victims that authorities think could have been killed by Rasmussen. Denise Bodine has never been found. So Lisa's mother. When Lisa was little and taken into protective custody, she was asked by authorities if she had siblings, and she answered that she did. But they died one day when they went into the woods and ate grass mushrooms. What? So it's thought that there were other children somehow from where, I don't know, but other children and he killed them. Oh my god! Because I don't know how, but this is what this little girl said when, you know, authorities mm -hmm. had picked her up. That's eerie. It is eerie. In 1995, scavengers found a refrigerator tied closed with electrical wire. When they pried it open, they found the remains inside of a woman. She had been killed by blunt force trauma to the head. No ID. Mm. So this was also not also Denise. Suspected. They thought it was, it might be Denise again. Mm -hmm. It wasn't. But same MO, electrical wire, mm -hmm. hidden, blunt force trauma. So it suspected it. Still one of his, maybe. So just reading about this guy, it seems that he went after vulnerable young women with small children. He methodically separated them from family and friends and then killed them. Oh, wow. So who knows how many other victims are out there from this one guy. And it, it just, you look at pictures of him and he really changes by growing his beard. If he's clean shaven, he's, I mean, when he was younger, he's really kind of a cute guy with these beautiful blue eyes. And, but then he gets kind of mountain man looking with this gruff beard and stuff. Well, you mentioned he was like a chame chameleon. Well, the, the authorities called him chameleon. The yeah. chameleon. Yeah. yeah. And that kind of reminds me of Stephen Warren. Who they call also called the also called the chameleon, but he changed like he almost looked like a totally different ethnicity. It's almost like he used makeup or something to make himself look totally different. He would just totally look. He was just such a bland looking dude that he could do that. He could grow a beard or cut his hair differently or go get a tan and just kind of blend in. But this guy had such pretty eyes. It's it's kind of hard to imagine him totally going under the radar. Yeah. From what it sounds like. Yeah. And when, when he was young, he was not a bad looking guy. He was a, a nice looking guy. You know, as mm. he got older, he got gruffer and gruffer looking and crazy. I mean, yeah, his mugshot when he's in jail. Hell, you'll pull it up and you'll see it. He's just he's smiling. Actually, he's like Ugh, this cra that. crazy guy. He's. The daughter said that um, he was, he remembers her mother saying that he would burn her brother with cigarettes. So he was, he had a violent streak in him. Mm -hmm. And I believe that's why the mother left. But her mother never would have thought he, he was a killer. She knew mm -hmm. that he was off his rocks. <laughs> um, but Had a few cookies loose. I, if he, I think he had all his cookies loose, but would never suspect him of being hmm. a murderer, let alone a serial killer. Wow. 
Ich. Ich is right. That's why this guy just totally. And I, I shouldn't say that because he obviously had mental problems. I mean, but he. That's kn- fine. But he all. knew right and wrong because he changed his name all the time. He so changed he, his name. He knew what, what he was, was doing. Say. And then he went after the most vulnerable people. Right. Young single women. And their babies. With their children. Like that's the most vulnerable. So, so he knew he was doing so he couldn't have been that berserk. I mean, Mm-mm. so anyway. There you go. Yep. Have you Mm-mm. ever heard of him? Oh. No, I don't believe so. I love telling you stories that you've never heard. Ugh. Well, <laughs> well, well. <laughs> it doesn't happen often. But I okay, so let's move on out of here. Let's do some paranormal, shall we? Yes, we shall. Now you get to enjoy your beverage. And I shall. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I wanted to do something different this week. Not a road. <laughs> Yay! I looked on the internet forever Googling random things in New Hampshire. <laughs> I found a few odd things I really wanted to share okay. with you guys. There's a couple. Okay, so there's a gravestone that literally reads Captain Samuel Jones's leg, <laughs> which was amputated July 7th, 1804. <laughs> That's what the gravestone says. Where's Captain Jones? I don't know, but... The leg's there. <laughs> is There's his leg. It's buried in Washington, New Hampshire, which actually is the first town that incorporated the name George Washington. Really? Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Like the first town named Washington. It's New Hampshire. Yeah. It's the first town. Oh, it's a town called Washington. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the leg is buried in Washington, New Hampshire. <laughs> Which is actually the first town incorporated under the name George Washington. Did you get that, Mom? I did. Too many names for you? I was just taken with the amputated leg Yeah, but then, yeah, because he buried his leg. (laughs) I also found that off Route 103 in Newbury, New Hampshire, there is a rock painted on the side of the road. It has been there for decades, and no one really knows what the rock means or by whom it was painted by, or for whom. Did I say that right? (laughs) (laughs) They don't know who painted it, and they don't know for whom it was painted. Got it. The Rock originally said, quote, Chicken farmer, I love you. (laughs) And from what I read, it was written there in the 60s. There's been a movie about The Rock, songs, poems, and the town has a chicken farmer 5K. So there are bumper stickers and shirts. Oh, my gosh. Over time, I guess some outsiders. I believe the town of Newbury, where it's painted, is really small. It's like 2,000 people. And some outsiders considered it like tacky graffiti. Oh, no. And they had it painted over with like this horrible red blob. So the town came together and they were really angry about this. Well, that person, they had no right to do that. And so they have since had words repainted onto the rock (laughs) and the rock now says chicken farmer i still love you (laughs) so there's a great article i read on this the journalist goes and interviews several townspeople trying to get the secret behind the chicken farmer rock and like who it could be because i guess there was a back in the 60s there's a chicken farm across the street there's a little girl there so was it for her was it for the woman you know right they don't know so it's a really great little happy little post you guys should read it i'll post a link to it it's it's such a cute little article so (laughs) i will post that in the description of this episode because it's super cute and you should read it Another fun story in New Hampshire is the paranormal story this week. It's another legend, but there is some actual truth to it this time. (laughs) Are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. It begins in the year 1720. And many immigrants were headed to America to settle in a new home. A large vessel called the Wolf held some of these families of immigrants coming from Scotland and Ireland. James and Elizabeth Wilson were a married couple aboard the Wolf headed to Londonderry, New Hampshire. But while at sea, on July 28th, the wolf is overtaken by a band of pirates. Pirates. Oh. The captain of the pirates, Don Pedro, led his men aboard the ship, ordering them to steal all the goods they could. And his plan was to loot the goods and leave the wolf to burn with the passengers Oh, how awful. 
Getting on the ship, Don Pedro heard something that made him stop his men, the sound of an infant crying. He searched for the baby and found that it had just been born. <gasps> in all the hustle and bustle on the ship, Elizabeth Wilson had gone into labor and had had oh, her baby. Oh my gosh. Don Pedro asked if the new baby was a boy or a girl. They responded it was a girl. And Don Pedro said that he would stop all of his men and let all the passengers go if they were to name their baby Mary after his mother. Oh my gosh. And so ocean-born Mary was born. <laughs> Came to be. Yes. Don Pedro ordered his men off of the wolf, but before the ship departed, he came back aboard and gifted the Wilsons with some green silk. And he asked that Mary use the silk for her wedding gown. The Wilsons go on to settle in New Hampshire. Now, fast forward to December 18th, 1742. Oceanborn Mary is 22 and is described as tall. I read six feet, actually. Wow. Red-haired with bright eyes. She had elegant manners and was full of humor. Ooh, that green silk is going to look beautiful with her red oh, hair. Can you imagine? <laughs> and on this day in December in 1742, it is her wedding day. She married James Wallace, and it is said that she looked radiant in her green silk wedding gown. Which was handed down to many women in her family to be worn in their weddings. And actually, pieces of the gown are shown at the DAR Museum in Washington, D.C. And in the public library at Heineker, that New Hampshire. That is so cool. It's this beautiful, like, it's kind of faded now, obviously, but it's like more of a teal green, mm. which is kind of our favorite color. It has these little flowers on it. It's beautiful. Wow. So the parents actually kept that contract, Silk. so to speak, mm -hmm. and, and kept true to it. She and her husband go on to have five children, four boys and one girl, and they grow up to be very respected in their communities. There was Thomas. He fought in the Revolutionary War. There was Robert, worked as a legislator and member of the governor's council. William, raised horses and cattle. James, don't know too much about him. I believe he died fairly early, like in his early 30s or late 20s. Mm -hmm. And Elizabeth. And the greatest accomplishment I could read about her, because that's just what it was at the times, was that she married Thomas Patterson, a lieutenant in the New Hampshire militia. Okay. So, good girl, Elizabeth. <laughs> now, ocean-born Mary's husband, James, died on October 30th, 1791, and she was left widowed. Not really knowing what to do, her children were all grown. Actually, her three sons, because the fourth son had died, they all married sisters, which reminds oh. me of Seven Brides for Seven <laughs> Brothers. <laughs> okay. Anyway, and they lived away from their home in Londonderry in a town called Heineker, New Hampshire. Now, this is where the legend gets a little fishy and different tales are told, but I picked my favorite version and that's what I'm going to share with you. So Mary's alone and doesn't know what to do. Well, it's around this time that Don Pedro, that pirate, pirate. from before. Yes. Well, he lived in Heineken. Nope, not Heineken. <laughs> Heineker. <laughs> Heineken's a beer. <laughs> My autocorrect corrected this <laughs> to Heineken. Sure it did. It did. <laughs> the pirate lived in... In he settled in Heineker area as well, and he hears about that baby from the ship and her distress, and so he asks her to come and live with him as his housekeeper. Now, Don Pedro is a very wealthy pirate and wants to retire, so it is said that he buried all of his treasure in the orchard of his home in Heineker, and even his most precious jewels under the large hearth in the kitchen. But he's along in years now and needs some help. So he asks Mary to move in and just he has help to him. be really old by now. It's not like a relationship or anything. Well, some no. story said that they got married. Come on, this dude has to be like super old by this time. So she comes and helps him and is close to her sons that live in the same town. So it's a win win. Don Pedro is killed one day out in his orchard by another angry pirate. And upon his death, the home and all of his remaining treasure was left to Mary. Ugh. She grew old in the home, dying at the age of 94. Like, holy smokes. That's what her gravestone says. Like, literally, her gravestone in Heineker, it says, which is cool because it doesn't just give the birth year and the death year. You don't have to do the math. You don't it have literally to said, 
here lies Mary Wallace Wilson. She died at the age of 94. Wow. Yeah. That's quite an accomplishment in those years, too. Yeah. In front of her gravestone that says Mary Wallace Wilson is another little stone that reads Ocean Born Mary. Oh, wow. So soon after her death, sightings and hauntings from Ocean Born Mary started to occur. They would see tall, red-haired woman in the window of the home, flickering lights, and of course she was seen walking down the main staircase of the old <laughs> Of course home. she was. And she was always dressed in a white gown. Oh. Why she didn't pick to wear the green one as a ghost, I don't know. Come on, Mary. One day in 1917, a man named Luis Maurice August Roy, let's just call him Roy, wrote to the local postmaster asking if there was a home in Heineker for sale with some kind of historicness to it. <laughs> That's a new word for us. <laughs> historicness. He was advised on the ocean-born Mary home, so he and his mother bought it. Sight unseen? Mm-hmm. It was kind of run down, so they start to work to fix it up, and they started to have some experiences with Mary. Apparently, if anything bad was about to happen to the house, say a fire or something, she apparently would save Roy. Wow. I read that he had over 17 near-death experiences in the home, <laughs> maybe from a father or something. He sounds like a klutz to me. <laughs> but he survived it all with the help of Mary. I wonder who my Mary is. <laughs> George. So I guess like there was a fire once in the home and he couldn't get to the water fast enough. And it looked, the fire went out and it had looked like a blanket was like thrown over it. It just kind of folded out. Oh my gosh. Roy's dog wouldn't go anywhere near the cellar and there was always odd noises in the house. So Mr. Roy and his mother fix up the house and he decides to open it up for tours. <laughs> Even offering shovels for 50 cents. Why? To dig in the orchard for the pirate captain's buried treasure. Oh, that's cheap. Other haunting, well, I don't know, 50 cents is cheap. <laughs> Other haunting occurrences, I guess. In, the in 1938, there was a huge hurricane and the high winds were causing the garage to sway. So Roy had to go out and prop up the garage. When he was done and he went back into the house, his mother asked, who was with you while you were working on the garage? She had seen a lady in white and thought it to be one of the neighbors. Roy, of course, had seen no one. So... Roy is giving tours and one day a woman comes to the door and says, I'm back for the rest of my tour. Roy was confused and she went on to tell Roy that she had come out for a tour a while back and a woman had given her a tour but only walked her into one room, turned and walked out. Imagine just being walked into a room. One room. You just come for a Hi, I'd like a tour. And then they okay. just don't say anything to you. And they just walk you into a room and then just leave. <laughs> Apparently, Mary liked to open doors for people and leave them in rooms. But Psychics believed there was something buried under the hearthstone. Legend says that anyone disturbing the hearthstone would die. Supposedly, a man set to dig up the stone died in a strange manner just a week before the event was to take place. Oh. Ed and Lorraine Warren even came out to the home at a time. Oh, no, they did. It was way in the beginning of their career. Career. <laughs> I think it was just like before they even really started doing real investigations. Uh-huh. And apparently, this is where Lorraine realized she was a sensitive. And I guess she had this huge out-of-body experience and had this realization in this home that she could communicate with the dead and was a clairvoyant really it is said that every october around halloween mary makes an appearance at midnight a phantom coach and horses pull up to the house <laughs> a tall woman in a filmy white dress comes out goes to the side of the house cinderella <laughs> throws a packet in the old well <laughs> and then boards the coach, which vanishes. Sometimes people just hear the wheels rumbling down the road. But no horses, <laughs> just the wheels. All right. And it's always around Halloween. Everybody put your Batina hats on. 
Because remember, I said this was a legend. What's true and what's not? Let's chat about it. Well, <laughs> Oceanborn Mary was real. She okay. was born at sea. And the pirate part of the story, I mean, researchers do say it's probable. And she was buried. And her dresses she are was... in the museums. Okay. All those children, having those children and everything. She was that's real. All real. All the, that's, that's all, all real. real. Yes. She did get married. She had children. Her husband died. But when she was widowed, she moved out to Heineker where her sons lived because that's where her sons lived. And she moved in with her son, Robert Wallace. Now, this is according to the 1800 and 1810 census. Okay. okay. So she moved in with her son, Robert. So not the pirate. Now, this home where Mary lived with Robert was left abandoned for some time, was purchased in 1844, and was turned into a poorhouse okay. named Wallace Poor Farm, but in later years was destroyed by vandals and torn down. Okay. Well, what about the house that Mr. Roy bought? Well, this house was the house of Mary's other son, William. So there wasn't the pirate there. I'm still worried no. about this pirate. No, the pirate never lived there. Dang, that, that would have legend. been a really the good story. The pirate coming onto the ship and giving her silk. That's maybe. true. Maybe. That could be true. I mean, the dress is there and everything else. See, I found that really odd that the pirate lived but in town. Pirate, but. the end. That's it. Like, there's no more real pirate. Okay. This is where it kind of ties in. So this house that we just talked about, Oceanborn yes. Mary's house, that's mm -hmm. what they call it now. This was actually William's house, her other, other son, son, William. Mm -hmm. And that's the house that Mr. Roy bought. It seems that, remember, he asked for a historic house. Mm -hmm. It seems that he had some kind of a plan. Okay. We can't be for sure that he made the whole story up, but it kind of seems like he was going around and made up this legend about, oh, I'm living in the house of a pirate. And he kind of made up this whole story about pirate for coming 50 back. 50 cents. And, I mean, on the tours, he would point to this rocking chair he had in one of the rooms in a corner. And he would tell them this was Mary's favorite chair. And then he would stand on the other side of the floorboard <laughs> and rock it move. the chair. <laughs> so Roy and his mother, the conniver mm -hmm. and his mother, are buried there on the property. Okay. So here's my question. What about Lorraine Warren? Yeah. Was she tricked? By Roy? Or is there some, because they've kind of willed it to be, is there some kind of a haunting happening there? Now, the next owners of the house haven't reported any hauntings, but they do have trouble with people breaking in on their land and digging up their yard mm -hmm. for buried treasure. And I will say that at some point, some police officers did capture what looks like a tall, red-haired woman in a white flowy dress. Mm-hmm walking across the street in front of the home oh that's weird the video was never released but they like claim that that's true ocean born mary so what is true so what is true the end <laughs> you leave me befuddled yeah that's what i got for you mama well that was fun and bewildering i mean i knew the pirate didn't live there but yeah, you were very concerned <laughs> Why would a pirate move into And there a are so many town? different legends of like versions of the legend where the pirate came back and married her and but that didn't make any sense. That would be gross. He'd, he'd be, be like old. an old man. Mm -hmm. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. Things that make you go. Hmm. Hmm. I, the only thing that throws me is Lorraine. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Was she we'll really? <laughs> we'll never know. All right. New Hampshire interesting ride mm, i'd say so interesting drink interesting it was delicious it was it's gone yeah <laughs> the two servings are gone mm -hmm. what do we have next week darling virginia okay boy we're just kind of staying there on the east coast aren't we <laughs> wasn't done on purpose we sure are we need to pop around there i think we might venture a long way off next time after virginia yeah, so next week we do Virginia and... And? On the exact same day that Virginia episode's being released, our very first listener's episode is being released. What is that, Beth? The listener's episode? Well, let me tell you. It is where you email us your true crime or paranormal stories to killerhangoverpodcast at gmail.com and my husband, Alex, the man who never gets a drink of our beverages, <laughs> reads your emails and picks which 
we are going to read. We month. do not see them before we read them. We do them. not see them before we read them. So you will get our honest to goodness reaction. <laughs> yeah, reaction. So again, that is killerhangoverpodcast at gmail.com. And today is the last day for you guys to join Patreon to get your free gift from us. You can always join Patreon. Oh, you can always join Patreon. But if you want <laughs> your free that welcome little gift, gift, join today. There you go. You get extra episodes. You get to hear our voices. Early. Earlier every week. Earlier. And um, more. Earlier and more. For $5 a month. Yeah. And the cost is $5 a month. And guys, that really just helps us with the beverages every week. Because some of these liquors are a little expensive. (laughs) You're telling me. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, oh, maybe I won't make that one. But we want to because I want to try them. And you guys love these recipes. That's what a lot of our emails and people or comments are saying is that they love the recipes we post. Trying these People love to drink them while they listen to the episode. So, yeah. (laughs) Thanks for the $5. Patrons, you know who you are. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yes. I will put a link to the Patreon account in the description of this episode. And you can find us on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram, where we post episode photos, recipes for the cocktails, and uh, pictures of our snoring dogs in the podcast room. They are all, like, totally asleep. Totally asleep. (laughs) Hopefully our voices don't put y'all to sleep. You can also find us, we have a website. Killerhangover.wordpress.com this is a fun one, Mom. This cocktail was probably one of my favorites. It was. And like it's kind of going to my head. So It was very strong. I will warn you guys. It, it's so good going down, but it really packs a punch. I have to agree. It's very easy going down. You're kind of like eating a caramel apple, but woo. <laughs> it went straight to my head. Cheers, Mama. Cheers. Love you, kid.